It was a different time. The same places, but a different time. People lived mostly close to the ground, meaning they, they lived and, and got their food from growing it themselves. But they didn't own the ground. The ground belonged to the Lord or the prince or the king who lived in the large castle that was somewhere in the vicinity. And so they lived very much hand to mouth. And, and when the great plagues would come or, or, or when there were droughts or when the, when the land didn't produce, many people would die. And even in regular life, what we would think of as regular life, most children over half would, would die within the first few months um, if they were born at all. And the largest structures weren't the castles that the kings lived in in that time. The largest structures, the most ornate structures, the, most, the structures that towered over everything, can you guess what they were? The cathedrals, yes. The cathedrals. It, it wasn't just that the church, and at that time what we know of as the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't just that the church was a presence, it was present in everyday life. When, you, when, 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 people would go, when people would go to worship, they would walk into these grand structures that were filled with, with statues and with, with images. No expense was ever spared to put these together. Part of the excuse was that, well, our people are illiterate, so we're going we're gonna to have these paintings and we're going to have these statues to tell, the, to tell the Christian story, to help them understand what it is. Because at that time, people didn't believe that, that no one believed that common people ought to know how to read. There was no reason for it. They didn't, they didn't really know it. We, we can pass on the knowledge to them. And so the priests were generally, and the princes, were the most learned people in the land. And so the priests, of course, every Sunday would come and, and, and have the Mass, if not more often, if not every day, would have the Mass, and, and they would speak, and they would study the Scriptures, but then they would, they would just say whatever it was that they believed, or what tradition taught them was the right thing about that particular scripture. And so the people, if they understood what the priest was saying or not, we don't necessarily know because they may have even been speaking in Latin because that's what they were generally reading. That's, that's, what the, that's what the mass was in. That was the language of the mass. Um, did you know that, uh, just a little side note, did you know that hocus pocus the word hocus pocus probably comes from sort of a, 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 a mashup of the, of, some, of the Latin phrase that a priest speaks still to this day in, in the Latin Mass when, 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 they are, when they are in the midst of the sacrificial meal of the Lord's Supper. I forget what the exact Latin is, but, but it, hocus pocus, poof. And now this isn't just bread and wine, this is body and blood. Boom. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So they wouldn't have known, they, they, didn't, they didn't understand. But this was a time in these Middle Ages, this is a time in the Middle Ages when ideas were beginning to change. The Enlightenment and, and what we know of as modernization was starting to, to show up in different places. 
And Martin Luther, of course, as you, as you know his name, was a young man, and he was actually uh, raised uh, in, in, in quite a, an affluent family. His, his father was his businessman and, and, and quite a affluent family. So, so Martin Luther got one of the best educations that, that money could buy at that time. He was a very smart young man, and he, he decided that his father wanted him to be an, a lawyer, wanted him to study the law, and... And so Martin uh, was bright, and so he was going off to school, but he, he got caught in a thunderstorm on his way back to school uh, one day. A very violent thunderstorm. And he prayed to God. He said, God, if you will save me from this, I will dedicate my life to you. Anybody ever said anything like that? Yeah. Did you follow through? No, I don't have to answer. He did. Against his father's wishes and his father's will, he, he became a monk. And, and he became a teacher. And he became renowned for his teaching and for his preaching. The things that, that he was saying, people wanted to hear. And, and as, he began, as he began to study the Bible more for himself... He began to see these disparities between what he was being taught as a monk and, and what the church was teaching and what he saw in the scriptures. And he, and he battled, um, at least in this, uh, in, in, in this one-hour special that I watched recently, um, Rick Steves, if you ever get a chance to watch it, look up Rick Steves and, and it's Luther and the whatever. Um, he's, Rick Steves is an interesting guy, but, the, but the, I think the, the background stuff is pretty good. Um, but he talks about how, how uh, Martin Luther, and wrote about this quite a bit, Martin Luther sort of would, would go through these dark times, and he would call it where he was struggling with the devil. And he, and he would have a conversation with the devil and, 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 and would have to, you know, and he would, and he would very much uh, live into the confessional nature of, of the Catholic Church. He would, he would lie, uh, lay in front of the, in front of the altar um, with his arms outstretched over the top of where a priest was, was buried, because that's what you do is you bury priests in the, in the, where the table, oh, that's a whole other thing. But he would, he would lay there overnight and, and confessing his sins and asking God for forgiveness, but he, he never ever felt like he, he actually received it, that, uh, because he never felt like he could do enough for the great sin you know, for the great sin that was on his shoulders that, as the church taught that. And so at the same time, um, part of the teaching of the church was that, uh, was that you know, you, you, you amassed sin and brokenness all throughout your life, and if you, if you hadn't done enough to get it out, you, you went to purgatory where it would be purged from you. And and you could, you could pay to have a mass said for your relative you know, who was in purgatory to help them gain enough merit in order to, to get out of purgatory. And so one of the other things that they did then, and this happened when Luther was really going through this period of looking at the Bible and, and all that, was that they, had, um, they were sending around priests who, who were selling indulgences. And so you would get an indulgence, you would buy it, and it was a very ornate piece of paper that basically said, you know, you've, you, you've, you've purchased your, your family's, your, your person's soul. And so one of the things that they said was, when the, you know, when the, when the penny and the copper rings, a soul from purgatory springs. 
So you could buy forgiveness, literally. And Luther thought this was, that was one of the biggest things that he was just like, that, that, there, is, it is, there is nowhere in Scripture where it says you can buy forgiveness. And so he began to teach against this and to talk about this as something. He, he really wanted, he wanted to be a reformer. He really wanted to reform the church from the inside out. But the political nature of things at that time, that was just not going to be the way it was. I mean, you know, the Pope was building St. Peter's and they needed more money. I mean, some of the greatest art that we know that people go see today, some of the greatest statues were, were, were built, were made um, and paid for with money from, from the selling, buying and selling of indulgences. So it's this interesting legacy, isn't it? And so Martin Luther then, he wrote up these 95 points that he wanted to argue and, um, and publish them. This was also the time of the printing press was just starting, to, just starting to come around. And so things could be disseminated more quickly. And so he, you know, they say famously, he, he, he lived in Wittenberg. And so he nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, which would be like the Starbucks bulletin board, you know, of today. I mean, that was, that was where people would hang things that they were trying to publicly tell people. Because, um, of course, the church was the center of everything. And so I won't bore you with, not bore you, but I won't enlighten you with all of the history, with all of the history from there. But basically what ends up happening is, is you end up, you end up with, with the start of what we have today which is Protestants and Catholics, and of course then we now know a whole, bunch of, a whole bunch of other folks. The reformation, the reformation of things. The reformation of things. And the scripture that, that really got uh, Martin Luther going was... Um, was that Roman scripture, and we read it in the message translation, so you may, it, it, you may not have necessarily heard it. Um, but basically it says in uh, Romans 3, beginning with verse 20, For no human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested to by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified, meaning made right, made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This phrase in, in, in Romans was the thing that, Luther, that set Luther off and, and made him begin to not have that battle with the devil and 
and realized that his sin had been completely forgiven in Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. And so rose up this, this teaching that, you know, we cannot buy God's forgiveness. There, there's, nothing, there's nothing that we do in order to earn God's forgiveness. Despite what the world would tell us, right? Despite all of that. Because in the rest of our lives, supposedly, you know, in America, it's a meritocracy. I, I say supposedly because we could debate that for hours and hours and hours and we're not going to. But, but, we're, but we're basically taught, you know, you put in the work, you're going to get the spoils, the harder you work, the, the more you're going to get. Well, what's so foreign to us then is to come to church and be like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. We respond to God's love with love because God first loved us. We're not trying to earn God's love. God's love is just not just, is a fact for us. And as foreign as it seems, grace says that no matter what we do, God's grace is sufficient for us. We are forgiven and called into this new life, reformed all the time to be made a gift for others in the name of of Jesus. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't, even when we feel like I'm not really sure what I'm doing in this world, I don't even, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. I'm not even for sure who I am anymore. God's grace is sufficient. And when you begin to reimagine that kind of reformation in your life, imagine what you can do, how you could be set free. Imagine what happens to the addict or the alcoholic when they hear a word of grace to say, yes, you've done some horrible things. Yes, you've been in the grips of something just immensely difficult. But you are a child of God. And God is calling you, has already healed you, even if you don't, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't understand it. God has already made you complete and whole. Now, welcome into that new life. Step forward in God's love. Leave that guilt and shame behind. Make amends where you need to and live into this new life that God is giving you. And not just for the addicts or the alcoholics among us, but for those of us who are addicted to the meritocracy, to our own ego, to our own wanting to look good in front of others feeling ashamed when we screw something up in our own mind. Or if we're not living up to our potential. Maybe you've never thought that in your own head. That God's grace is sufficient. That is one of the biggest gifts of the Reformation. Is that God loves us so much that he gave his son, that we might be drawn into that life, that we might know that grace in such a powerful way, that we might live as if it really makes a difference for us. 
and that we might live so that other people would know that. That it's not just for us individually, but it is for us corporately. It is for every human being. It is for the entire universe. And so we live a different way because we care a different way, because we have been brought into this vision of what God sees in every human being, in in that they are complete and whole as they are. That God is working to reform them. We don't necessarily have to fix them to make them look like us, act like us, be like us. We can love them and hold them accountable care for them with grace and with hope. And so I just, I'd love for you to study some of this Reformation stuff. It's really interesting because it changed the world. I mean, the world was beginning to change. So what happened was, is then Martin Luther with the printing press, now he says, you know what? I think everybody, I was able to read this for myself and look what happened. I was able to, to have this complete revolution that God enacted in me so that I, 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 I feel more connected with God and more deeply um, faithful to God. And I feel this grace that God is, has given me. I want everybody to be able to read the Bible in their own language. So he set about translating the entire Bible into the vernacular. And he did that in a way in German that it changed the way German was spoken. Because people started to learn German by reading the scriptures or having it read to them. He changed the language because he was committed to having everybody be able to read it in the vernacular. You wonder why we have all these translations? You can thank him. Or not. Right? I mean... He wanted, he wanted people, it, it revolutionized the way then of education because people began to believe that everybody needs to be able to read because, if, because everybody thought that everybody was a Christian. So they, they thought, well, everybody ought to be able to read the Bible. Christians were the first ones to set up schools so that every child could read because they wanted them to be able to read the scriptures and hear for themselves this glorious story of God. It was Martin Luther who said, there's not all these sacraments, there are two What are they? Baptism and Holy Communion, right. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Yes. Yes, and that's what we have today, those two sacraments. He actually... um, um, at that time in the, in the Catholic Church, when you, when you came forward for, for the Lord's Supper, you only received the wafer or the, or the bread. The priest would put it, you couldn't even touch it. The priest would put it on your tongue. And that's it. You didn't, the wine was for the priest. Go figure. <laughs> I mean, you can keep it to yourself. Why not, right? So, um, but, but Martin Luther and the Reformers are like, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. God's grace is sufficient. Everybody deserves to receive both. And so you receive both. Um, congregational singing, for better or worse, became a thing. Boy, we have more fights over music in the church now, you know? I mean, not our church, of course. But in congregations about, about how you sing, Martin Luther, um, you know, set, uh, he, he, took, he, he wrote out these beautiful words, and we're going to hear one of those, those hymns later, I believe, um, one of his most famous, and he, he, set those, he set those words to drinking songs, because that's what people knew, they knew those tunes, right? 
And so today when people go, oh, I don't like this modern music. Well, what we're, what we're singing when we sing hymns was modern music of the time. And so we just, we're following in that tradition. Again, for better or worse, we're following in that tradition of taking words and putting them to music that everybody knows so that they might worship God in a really wonderful way. I'm trying to think, I want to say, there are a couple of other things that, that, that came out of that. Uh, oh, the centrality of Scripture. Scripture became um, a centerpiece. The Word became a centerpiece uh, of, of our worship. Still in Presbyterian churches today, it's really, I mean, I'll say that in my practice and, and, what, and about what Calvin wrote, um, it really, it isn't, it isn't worship where, it, unless you have um, the Word proclaimed rightly and the, and the, and the sacraments um, administered correctly. It's not worship unless you have those things together. There was a huge emphasis on preaching, um, maybe too much, in my opinion. Um, just because we, you know, it, 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 in Protestant churches around the world now, oftentimes it's the, it's the sermon that became the centerpiece instead of the Eucharist um, or instead of the Lord's Supper. And I think in Presbyterian churches and Lutheran churches, but we try to balance that out a little bit more. Preaching is very important. The word is very important. But also this sacrament that Jesus gave us is incredibly important. And that's part of the reason why we at Westminster have um, the Lord's Supper every week, is we just feel it's so important to have that uh, table together. Um, Oh, and that um, one of the changes was that, that it wasn't hocus pocus anymore. That the bread stays bread and the wine stays wine, but Jesus is, Lutherans would say, really present. In, with, and under, Martin Luther would say, the bread and the wine. That, that Christ is, Presbyterians would say that, that Christ is present in, in the sacrament through the Spirit. That this isn't just some memory meal and it's not some magic. You know, it's not some confection. It, Christ is really present here in, in a different way when we come together on that table and that everyone, through God's grace, is welcome to it. What a wonderful thought that you don't have to pay to receive the sacrament. And so the bottom line of the Reformation were a couple of questions, really. What is essential And what is not essential? What connects us with the grace of God and what doesn't? And we don't throw tradition out just because it's old or different or we don't understand it, but we always are looking at it. And and, um, Presbyterians especially love this phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Secundum verbum dei. And I know you all know what that means, so I'm not going to say what it means. No, 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 no. Anybody know? Right? The church reformed, always to be reformed, according to the word of God. According to the word of God, and I'm going to add, and according to the spirit. Because the word of God that we're referencing here is the living word of God. So reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God through the Spirit. That's the gift of the Reformation. And so as you reimagine the Reformation for you, 
What is it that is essential for your life of faith, for your life as you seek, as you are being formed and reformed to be God's person in the world? What is it that is essential? And what is it that is adiaphora, which means what is extraneous? What is not really needed or what is just frill? Where is God calling you to be reformed in your life today? And how can you reimagine that to be a gift to the world because of the gift that we've all received in the grace of God? Amen.